0: Hello and welcome to the EdSurge podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I'm an editor and a reporter here at EdSurge. We're a national nonprofit newsroom covering change at all levels of education. Kamika Royal has been diving into the history of school reform in her home city of Philadelphia. She's been looking back over the last 50 years or so, which has included some turbulent times like a takeover of the city schools by state leaders back in 2001. She's an associate professor of urban education at Loyola University, Maryland. And she's been looking at how school systems work and who school reform ends up serving. The result is her recent book, Not Paved for Us, Black Educators and Public School Reform in Philadelphia. One observer recently called this book a cross between the TV shows The Wire and Abbott Elementary. That's because it humanizes the people involved while facing up to hard truths about systemic failures. Royal argues that the focus of school reform efforts should be on providing a consistently high quality of education, no matter which students are in the classroom. And she argues that efforts at using school desegregation as a strategy to improve education have not historically served Black children well. She says this look at recent history has lessons for today's culture wars over schools. In fact, Royal worries that what happened in Philadelphia's school takeover is repeating itself now in Texas, where state officials recently took over the Houston Independent School District. Here's my conversation with Kamika Royal. When you first started digging into this history, and like you said you you went deep you were looking at the school board minutes which from what from what I could tell this is these are not like it's like a large volume of material you were doing Oh to. my
1: god it is each volume is somewhere between 700 pages and 1200 pages and each volume represents one year
0: And so you were you were going deep into what the systemic change at these schools were and you were fo- and your focus your focus really is around Black educators and diversity of, of the teaching core and, and, and its impact, I guess, what surprised you most or what, what do you think people may not understand about, here it is, this, you know, northern city, uh, right? What, what did you encounter in this history that people may not realize?
1: Um, a few things. So first, I'll say that one of the first things that surprised me was that I could actually see the names of people I knew in the minutes. Um, the thing that stands to mind most, though, around what surprised me is what people were actually willing to put in the minutes. Um, I imagine most people don't go and read them. My editor at Harvard told me that, you know, this is an untapped resource there are not there are not a lot of people using minute meeting minutes, you know, as a data source. There is um, a congressman whose name I will not say, who said some things in the minutes that, I read as a threat to um, to the school reform commission. Now, it was a veiled threat, but I was reading it like anybody who has been paying attention to what's been happening can clearly hear, read that this is a threat.
0: Can you just can can you can you give us a just a little color of like what this again you don't have to name this the the lawmaker but like what was the the context and what were they debating as as this came up
1: So what happened was this was uh probably in 2011 and um 2010 2011 um the school reform commission was the governing body of the the school district of Philadelphia at that point point, the the schools had been taken over by the governor or by the state um the superintendent at the time, I think she was, called, her official title was CEO, was Arlene Ackerman, who has now passed away. She passed away in 2013. But at the time, there was a high school in Philadelphia that um, they were privately managed. And there was a debate around who would be the company that would be the private managing company of this public school. Um There was at first there was one particular company and then I can't remember uh, another people were looking at another company to do it. And so basically this person who at the time was a state senator had ties to the company um, that had been managing it. And the principal, he from what I understand, he was sort of sending word that he expected them to still get the contract. And the contract was for something like twelve million dollars. Um, I think she was trying to honor. Who knows? I, I don't know what she was trying to do because I didn't get to interview her about this. Right. But the way that it looked was that she was trying to honor a particular process that perhaps engaged the public more. There was a local um, board of like parents and, and people who said we actually want this other company. And so that state senator, state sen- representative, whatever he was, came to the School Reform Commission meeting and said, you know, if this company doesn't get the contract, I will be very unhappy. You know, some version of that. And basically like Hulk, like you don't want to deal with me when I'm angry. Right. That sort of um, thing. And I just thought it was weird. Now, what also happened then is that the other company that was being considered then withdraws from consideration. Right. And so then I'm wondering there was also a meeting, by the way, the night before the meeting with um, some SRC people and, and some up- district people with the CEO of the company that was going to come in. And, and now the next day, he says, well, I'm withdrawing, you know, we're not, in. it was just kind of, it was very messy. And so I was surprised at what people put in the minutes in plain view. Um, I, you know, to me, I guess they think nothing's going, and nothing has happened to them, right? Like, you know, nothing happened, but I'm like, so you're just going to put this in the public document. Okay. I guess if you show up to the meeting and say it, right, why shouldn't you put it in the public document?
0: Right. People could show up, but it's interesting. So there you have this. And so what are, I guess, what are some of the, um, what are some of the biggest takeaways from, you know, looking at the span of time you did in the 60s up to now um, with this, the school system in Philadelphia? And what does it tell you? know Like, obviously... I think there's there's lessons for the rest of the country in this, but um, but what what do you think are some of the things that 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 your takeaways are from this?
1: Well, um, some of my takeaways, you know, it's it's people talk about reform. Um, unfortunately, the longer I study things, the more I actually end up um, sort of not believing in them. So, like, the longer I study, I am a fierce supporter of public schooling, right? I feel like we pay taxes. Um, the, the government to whom we pay taxes has a responsibility to provide uh, a free and and adequate, although adequate is debatable, public education. Um, however, because it is like the last bastion of socialism in America, I feel like it's so heavily um, debated and fought over and contested and... and It just becomes these spaces where I then start to feel like, well, we're just not going to get what we need. People, people who need school the most for social mobility, for instance. And I don't even I don't I think that is um, an underwhelming purpose of school. Actually, only using school for social mobility, I think, is underwhelming. I think even if you get social mobility out of it, it's still not enough for us to to be full human beings. Right. But let's say that we are going to work toward that. It becomes so difficult. Um, for that to actually be an outcome that happens for the majority, the masses of people. And in our very, I want to say, still in some way, puritanical um, ways of being, we still believe that when people are unsuccessful to attain social mobility, that it's not the system that has constrained them in any way, that it's totally their fault. Right. As if this same system hasn't worked to advantage some while deliberately disadvantaging others while claiming to be in a quote unquote equal playing field, you know, for everyone. That's a huge takeaway. Um, From this for me. And so it's it's very frustrating for me to look at reform, pe- what people call reform that isn't really reform. So something that's top of mind for me right now is the Houston Independent School District, um, which has been taken over by the state of Texas. Um, There's a, a Domingo Morell. I think his name is. I want to say he's at Brown has written this great book on state takeovers, right? School takeovers. I have not seen a single time where it has actually left the district better, left the people better, left the schools better. Right. But and so 22 years after Philadelphia was taken over by the state, here's Houston trying something that hasn't worked anywhere else. What is and calling it reform. Right. And so then what we have to talk about is what working even means and working for whom is working for somebody. Um, And the takeaway that I usually get from that is that the people who have power or who have money are somehow becoming. Richer or more powerful as a result of these reforms and the people who need schooling the most to make social mobility possible um, still get shafted, essentially.
0: Yeah, you I b- I believe you recently wrote a an a, a op-ed for a, a newspaper that talked about some of these like, you know, a high-performing school, magnet school I believe in the Philadelphia area and the who should get in the admissions system, is that right?
1: That's actually about my alma mater, it, which was founded in 1836, so one of the oldest public schools in the country. Um and I I made a lot of people upset from my alumni, my fellow, you know, alumni because I kept using the word privilege, but
0: What's the proposal? What, so what's the school and what's the proposal that you, you suggest?
1: Yeah. So my, the high school is Central High School of Philadelphia, um, which was uh, all boys until 1984. So from 1836 to 1984, they were all boys. Um, what was happening, there were whole zip codes in the school district of, in Philadelphia where children um, could not get into any of the magnet schools for academics. And um, a good friend of mine, actually, who's the chief of equity for the district in Philadelphia, um, helped to create a policy that was supposed to foster equity in these schools. Now, the devil's always in the details. Right. So what I think should actually happen and what the policy has shaken out to be are two very different things. But part of my argument was that. When people say like, well, if the kids didn't get in, they just didn't get in. They just weren't sort of good enough or they weren't smart enough. Their grades were. I think that that's bull. I don't know another way to say it. Right. You're not going to tell me that that there are whole zip codes. where not a single child can handle the work that happens at the school. And if that is the case, that none of them can handle it, then I think we have to look at the schools they're coming from to say, why haven't they been exposed to this? It it boggles me. If, If you told me you could find two, five per school, per zip code, something, it would make a little more sense. But you're telling me that whole zip codes are just, nobody can do it. Like it doesn't, it boggles the mind, right? Because then it has to be something else. If it's not the school, do we need to look at the paint? Like, is it lead? Is it the water? You're not going to tell me that all these people are just innately unable, right? It defies what we know about human beings, It just doesn't make any sense. And so that was part of my argument that I do think there should be spots reserved. Now, there's there's other things have come out since then. Right. So whether we look at the zip code or the individual schools where children are coming from, I think those things are valid concerns. But the idea that purely if you get this test score, you get in. And if you don't get this test score, you don't. I think that it is short sighted. And I think that it's shutting out a lot of kids who could be highly successful at academically rigorous schools.
0: Thing. Yeah, it's another another thing that I wanted to to talk about a little bit, and I will confess, you, I want to make sure you know not just in Philly, but it seems like there's a, a trend that Philly maybe represents. But I, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that there there were times in you know desegregation efforts in schools that you point out were put the burden on black teachers to make a change so that schools could be quote unquote integrated or, or made, you know, kind of meet certain kind of um, numbers so that it, it was, you know, it met the targets that these lawmakers were putting in or these school boards were putting in. And I, I, I think, I think it's really interesting because it seems like um it it seems like there's something that you are pointing to, that I would just like you to talk about a little bit about like how, you know, these efforts through the years to try to, you know, kind of balance, if you will, schools around race have, have had disproportionate, you know, or the way they've been done has been done in a certain way that didn't have to be that way and, and, and what the impacts are.
1: You know, I, I don't know a nice way to say this, but I, I, I don't. I'll just say that I feel like when it comes to school desegregation, that is a white people problem. And I'm saying that from a personal and a professional lens. I'm thinking about my own elementary school experience, which I talk about a little bit in the introduction of the book. When I went to a suburban Christian, allegedly Christian school um, outside of Philadelphia. And I remember I started there in the second grade. And back then, I didn't know what it was called, but we had an A class, B class and C class. Right. And so years later, you find out that you were I was in tracking. Now, I told you I became a teacher at 21 because I graduated college at 21. So I was a year early. okay? I I was put in what I later found out was the C class, the low class when I started. And I was there for six weeks. I remember being in this class bored out of my mind, having conversations about zip codes, no less. My friend didn't know her zip code. The teacher was trying to teach us how to address an envelope. And I was like, I know she has the same zip code as me. And she was like, well, she may not. And I was like, but I can walk to her house. Like, we live in this. I didn't know how to call it, like, a development. But I'm like, I promise she has the same one. That class was mostly black.
0: That doesn't sound like a lot of learning going on for any of your students there, yourself or the others. Definitely
1: not me. I was bored. Like I would get the work done and I'd be like, okay, well, what, what can I do? I also was a little busy. I probably had a touch of the ADHD or something. So the teacher calls my house on a Sunday after six weeks. She asks for my mom. The next day I go to the new class, now the A class. I remember opening the door. There was one black face in that classroom. and So now I'm one of two in the class, right? this was a great experience for the most part. I learned a lot. My teacher was nice, you know. Um, and you were, in other
0: words, there was like a big difference in the quality of the education between those two rooms.
1: See, I, I don't know if I can call it the quality of the education. What I will say is the level or the rigor. Okay. Um, because I, I do think I learned a lot from this school that I that I think was actually pretty racist. But I learned a lot from this school in that second classroom, in that first classroom I was bored. Now, thank God for a teacher who knew it was an inappropriate placement for me. But I do wonder about other students who were left in that class. Right. And the extent to which it was appropriate for them when we think about. And and so this is a, a school that would like to say, you know, we have this 30 uh, percent or 20, you know, whatever percent of black students. But when you start getting into the classrooms. Right. It doesn't look the same way. Two out of 25 or 30. Right. It's not it's not the same. I think about um, this being a white people problem uh, because usually I mean, depending on what city you're in, what area, white people usually are more of the population. Right. Um, and so can choose about where they send their children and all these sorts of things. Um, I think what's interesting, too, is there's this constant thing of not wanting white children to be minoritized, which I find adorable. Because I don't remember when anybody, when I got sent to that class that had one black boy in it, when was the conversation about, we don't want Kamika and Tony to be minoritized, right? When, when black children are sent to these environments, people aren't worried about black children being minoritized, us not seeing ourselves. There's so many things that as small children are expected to be resilient and just to just figure it out. And I'm like, do y'all know this is somebody's baby? Like, this is somebody you still have to tell to take a bath and brush their teeth, but somehow they're supposed to just you know, be able to suck this up in their classroom. Um, I think that if we really want to see desegregated schools and you have to see white people actually believing that that matters for them. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. This is going to sound harsh. Desegregated schools actually aren't a priority for me because I don't see where it really has benefited black students by and large.
0: Why not? That's really interesting. We'll say more about that. Why, Why hasn't it benefited or what do you mean?
1: Well, I think what ends up happening is black students are minoritized, right? So black students are often then told, taught, expected to conform to a number of things that are not sort of how they already are, right? Um, And I just, I feel like black, why can't black children get what they need and deserve in the schools they attend, regardless of who attends school with them? Why are dollars associated with the presence of white children? Right? Why can't good teaching, good books, all these things be okay for black and brown students, regardless of who else attends the school? Right? I think there's one thing. I went to a historically black college for undergrad. I don't have a problem with single sex or single race education, to tell you the truth. Now, but it's 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 one thing for your government to impose that on you. That I think is highly problematic, right? Not the government to whom we pay taxes. Not that government telling me where I can and cannot go. But for individuals, for communities to self-select, I don't see anything wrong with that. I think what usually happens is, um, what can happen, is that people value um, their students because they're already within community and they don't necessarily have to prove that they deserve to be there and the children don't have all these extra hurdles to jump over to, to, to show themselves worthy of being in the environment.
0: You know, I one of the um, podcasts you were on. The host said something that I thought was really striking. He said that your book is kind of like a, a mix between The Wire and Abbott Elementary, and two two pieces of media. I think a lot of our listeners have have, have been exposed to. You. Obviously, the Philadelphia with with Abbott Elementary. I, I guess what do you? I guess what do you? What would you add to people's? You know, kind of. Views of Philadelphia public schools that they may not, you know, where where? How would you just dis- would you cast to play? You know these 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 characters, or what would the tone be for you of like what people may not realize about about public schools in in Philadelphia?
1: You know, I would say the public schools in Philadelphia are complicated. You know, um, I am very I am proud of the work. I did to research this book, I'm a very proud, you know, native Philadelphian, right? In the fall, you will catch me on a Sunday trying to find where my Eagles are playing, okay? Um, At the same time, you know, you can't be from Philly and not have a certain concern, I'll say. Some people might have disdain, some others of us, you know, concern for some of what um, happens in our city and happens to our city. It, It is a difficult place um in in some ways and the last few years the i guess he's a lame duck mayor at this point but i want to say last summer made a comment about he can't wait until he's not mayor anymore right and and he said it to news can- like on a hot mic i'm like so you going to get on the tv and tell the pe- <laughs> tell the people that you don't want to be the mayor of the city it just you know the city just it it requires a lot um like, I love it. And at the same time, I watch myself when I'm there, um, be- just like in any city, right? You just don't know um, how things will go, right? But there's no place in the world, like, there's no city that's better than Philadelphia. There are- but there are also things about Philadelphia that could be a lot better. I don't know yeah. any other big city that has it right.
0: Do you, I guess, I'm curious, do you watch Abbott Elementary? I love Abbott all, or-
1: Elementary, Yes.
0: Um, It does feel like a different kind of portrayal of schools and popular media um, around race, but other things, too.
1: I love that it's a comedy that um, I love that we see kids being kids, right? That I, I, I hate the genre of education media that is all doom and gloom and the kids are scary and the teachers are tough and trying to fight the kids. Um, I do think, and so, I mean, when he said that it was a mix between Abbott Elementary and The Wire, I kind of laughed because I've I watched The Wire and I taught in Baltimore. Um, so I see it, right. But also there are points to it. Even when you think about The Wire, if you think about season four of The Wire, at, when they were in the schools and you can see some of the love between the children, you can see some of the conflict too. Um, but you can also see the love of when I think about I I've actually been watching The Wire recently again. So when I think about Cuddy who opened the gym, right, to sort of mentor the boys, we don't ever need to assume that because things are hard, they are impossible, that they are dire, that there aren't people who have full lives that also have joy. Um, I just watched an episode of The Wire where the kids went to Six Flags, right? Like there, there are still beautiful things happening there's still joy to be made and to have and so you know i do hope my book represents all those things
0: yeah so you you mentioned Houston and feeling like there's something it feels like your your comment was kind of like here we go again that was a period you studied from Philadelphia's history what So really quickly, I know it's like hard to do because you dug so deep. um, What happened in Philly that you are, it sounds like, afraid might happen in in Texas?
1: Well, first of all, Texas is a huge concern in and of itself, outside of the schools. The governor of Texas has been sending um, people to Philadelphia, dumping... um, People in Philadelphia, right? People who come seeking asylum in Texas, he has been putting them on buses and dumping them in Philadelphia. So that's, you know, then we have abortion bans and all types of stuff. We have curriculum issues in Texas. Texas itself is a concern. Before we even get to the Houston Independent School District, um, what concerns me is in Philadelphia. When the district was taken over by the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, it wasn't. It wasn't because of alleged failure. It was a political issue. OK, there was all this political infighting between um, the city and the state, between the superintendent. The superintendent of Philadelphia at the time had said that the, le- the state legislature was racist in its underfunding of the schools. And I happen to agree with him. It was racist. I just feel like he should not have told him that because his job was to get the money. But I think he was right that they were racist.
0: You have a great, I'm sorry, you have a great line in the book of like, it's not the best idea to call someone racist if that's the person you're asking for money. Is that the it,
1: idea? Some, absolutely. It, it's it's an incompetent motivator. Usually you don't call people racist and then they're like, let me write you a bigger check. That's that's not usually how that goes. But I think he was correct. He was, he was you know. His he, analysis you agree with. Absolutely. Absolutely. I just, I feel like somebody else should have been calling him racist and he, you know, it would have been nice if he could have gotten the money. But it was, they took it over because of the political wrangling. From what I can tell, okay, I could be missing some things about what's happening in HISD, but it seems that it's political wrangling all over again. I I feel like I read something that said it's not about test scores, which are usually what people say, like, oh, the test scores are so terrible. Everybody's having a hard time with test scores post-COVID. Right. People want to talk about slide and all these sorts of things. So why now is the state of Texas trying to take over Houston Independent School District where there has not been a successful takeover case in the country? So I, I do have to wonder. In what way is that a motivator? I Also, I don't know. We hear less, I think, about Abbott's um, aspirations. We hear more about DeSantis's aspirations. But I wonder if there's some battle between Abbott and DeSantis. Like, let me see who I who can seem like the biggest piece of trash um, by doing things like these. Right. So DeSantis has been going after the critical race theory boogie monster and trans kids. Um, who are children, and Abbott is like, let me deal with illegal immigration, and now let me take over this um, these schools. And I, I think it's more to show himself and to show the state as something, as opposed to really helping improve things for children and their families.
0: Hmm. And what, I guess, uh, it seems like, you know, what are some other pieces of advice that might be drawn from this history you tell in Philadelphia, for schools in America?
1: Well, you know, the the advice is a little difficult because it gets to be a little sticky. Um, I don't believe many of these institutions exist on the behalf of people who, who need these institutions the most to improve their lives. And so part of my advice is if you are going to work for these institutions, you have to think about how you can run interference as a person in this institution for the people who need the sort of higher aspirations or outcomes of these institutions for their lives the most. If we don't choose to look at who is most vulnerable, who has the potential of being most harmed, then what happens is we're complicit in the harm. So when you hear people say, well, I'm just doing my job. Okay, that's cool. But your job is harming people. Right, and so, in what way can we think about how to minimize that harm or how to change that around that's part of the advice the you know then I have a set of advice for black educators um let's go back for a second when I think about the in the sort of outro to the book where I talk about um these deseg policies and and black people having to face the water cannons first um a piece of advice would be don't do that, right? But also, what is the institution willing to sacrifice of itself instead of the people who have historically been harmed and marginalized, right? Instead of the people who are only brought into the center to be used as pawns. Um, And so I wonder how our leaders and purveyors of these institutions are willing to sort of put themselves at risk as opposed to the people who are already Um, vulnerable or only have, you know, this very sort of um, teetering power, right? I think about, for example, um, Barack Obama, when he became president of the United States and people are essentially like, well, we're post-racial now because Barack Obama is the president. Not only is that not true, not only in hindsight, can we look at all the times Congress stalled and froze the government, shut down the government because they were fighting with Obama, but the U.S. presidency Right. Our government is a machine that's running no matter who's at the helm. Right. Something. And, and, you know, when we were young and we were learning about checks and balances and all of this stuff, you're like, oh, this is really this is going to work to our advantage until you see like I can't get my paycheck because the government has shut down because Congress doesn't like that Obama wore a tan suit. Right. And so in some ways, you know, that even with, sort of him being in a position of power, there are still these other things running around him in this machine that's going to do its work regardless. And so those people who are doing the work of holding up democracy, of not working on behalf of the people, um, my book seeks to ask them, you know, in what ways they want to continue to hold that up. Like, is that intentional? Because these are the same people who then say, we're working for the people, or we believe in diversity, or we think everybody should have a fair chance.
0: I think it's really interesting. And one of the things you talk about a lot, I feel like that that I wanted to zoom back on for a minute is the ideology. That Essentially, you're sort of arguing that um, the bigger structure, that all these players that you tell the story of in your history that you just tell, are, are sort of, there, there's this kind of larger ideology that's at work, this machine in a way that you're describing that kind of churns along no matter who may be at the helm of various positions. And I, I guess... Talk a little bit about what you see. What are the problems you see with that ideology? What, How would you describe it and how would you like it to be?
1: Something as simple as the concept of an adequate education, right? You'll hear, so the president of the school board in the 1970s was a man named Arthur Thomas. He was the first black president of the school board for Philadelphia. He also worked under Mayor Frank Rizzo, who is notorious for a number of reasons, Um, And was this like he was very funny and personable, but he was also this big racist. Right. But he chose this black guy to be the president of the school board. So Arthur Thomas was given a speech one day where he talks about having an adequate education. What is adequate? Right. And then I think about um, people who decide for who can decide for themselves that adequate is actually not enough for their own children. So adequate can be something like, well, as long as they can pass this basic test or as long as we've given them reading, writing and math or as long as we've taught them to show up on time, as long as we, as we have disciplined them to certain behaviors, that is, quote unquote, adequate. But adequate has to do with what you think the capacity is of the people you're teaching and where they're going. Adequate has a lot to do with your expectations for them. And so if you don't think they're ever going to use multiplication, you don't really care that you have eighth graders who can't do algebra because they still are struggling with multiplication, right? You're like, ah, oh, well, we did our best, right? That's actually inadequate, though, right? So adequate is one of those ideas that people throw out the word and, and you may hear it and say, okay, that's fair, until you start to pull back the layers on. But adequate for what? Adequate to what end, right? So that's yeah. an example of the ideology that I mean.
0: I, I I really am glad you did this. Thank you for for talking with me.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: This has been the Ed Surge podcast. Every week we bring you conversations like this one. If you like the show, please follow us wherever you listen to podcasts, and please take a minute to leave us a rating or a review. That helps others find us. This episode was written and put together by me, Jeff Young. You can find me on Twitter at JRYoung or on the web at JeffYoung.net. Editing this episode by Rebecca Koenig and music is by Rowan Jane. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.